0: visit AscentEquityGroup.com forward slash best deal to schedule a call. That's A-S-C-E-N-T EquityGroup.com slash best deal. This opportunity is open to accredited investors only.
1: Just going there and meeting the right decision makers, trying to set up meetings, it's not much different than when you're trying to drum up business as an agent or a broker. I just Be persistent in trying to get in front of them and trying to build rapport and create a relationship.
2: Best ever listeners, before today's episode, I want to invite you to join us in Keystone, Colorado, February 20th through 22nd. It is the 2020 Best Ever Conference. And not only do I want to invite you to join us, I want to invite you to earn 15% for every ticket that you're responsible for selling should you join as an affiliate for the conference great way to earn money. And also if you're planning on attending, great way to pay for your ticket. Essentially you get enough sales. So you can go to BEC20.com and in the top left corner, it says earn 15% as an affiliate. You can click that, join the affiliate program, and you got all the resources that you need to share the good word about the best ever conference in Keystone, Colorado. And we will be talking more about this on future episodes. But for now, go check out BEC20.com and that affiliate page. You can earn 15% as an affiliate, and we will see you in Keystone, Colorado. Best ever listeners, today's guest is being interviewed by Theo Hicks. You know, Theo, he's with us every Friday on Follow Along Friday. You're going to get a lot of value from this conversation. So with that being said, let's get going. Hello, best ever
3: listeners. Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm your host today, Theo Hicks. And well, today... We're talking with Catherine Kuo. Catherine, how are you doing today?
1: Doing well. How about you?
3: (laughs) I'm doing well, too. Thanks for asking. I'm looking forward to our conversation and diving into your background. A little bit about Catherine. She is a commercial real estate advisor, investor, and entrepreneur. She currently handles leasing for just under 100,000 square feet of office and retail space in Las Vegas. Based in Las Vegas, and you can say hi to her at www.elitehomes.us. So Catherine, before we get started, do you mind providing us a little bit more about your background and what you're focused on now?
1: Sure. So I've been in real estate full time a little over 10 years, but pretty much all my life because my family actually started investing really when I was probably in like elementary or junior high school. And while most kids went on playdates, I followed my mother around underwriting properties, essentially. So I had my training really young. So we've been in the business pretty much all my life, just seeing things from an investor perspective. Right now, I'm focused on both managing our portfolio. Of that 100,000 square feet I handle leasing for, about 80,000 of that is what we own as a family. And then I also have a brokerage. I'm the broker and partner of the Elite Homes, which is Christie's International Real Estate's exclusive affiliate office in Las Vegas. I have a business partner that handles the luxury residential side of the business, and I focus more on the commercial side, representing investors and business owners for their commercial real estate needs.
3: So you focus exclusively on the office and retail of the commercial side, correct?
1: On the landlord listing side, I focus on that. But with business owners, I've worked with a lot of industrial users as well, so People that are looking to either lease or acquire buildings for industrial space have everything from working with a brewery to B2B distributors and showrooms.
3: So what percentage of the businesses you work for will lease their building as opposed to owning it themselves? Is it it pretty common that they lease exclusively?
1: Yeah. So most business owners, I would say maybe 80 to 90% will lease their space just because purchasing ties up a lot of their capital. They still have to put out a pretty hefty down payment and that's usually capital that could be used for things that would get a much better ROI for their business if they were to invest it towards equipment, labor, things like that.
3: I know for multifamily, for example, the rental rates are determined by comps. So they look at comparable apartment units in the area, see what those are renting for on a square footage basis and then kind of extrapolate from there to determine how much the subject property could rent for. How do they determine mm-hmm. the, the rental rates for these types of commercial spaces? So office, retail, and or industrial?
1: It's pretty similar. We do look at comps to see what the market's renting for, but the differences with lay in like the finishes and the build out, especially for retail would probably be the most unique because for example, if, if it's a restaurant or food use type of build out, it's typically going to rent for a dollar more square foot than a non food use just because that build out's between two, three hundred thousand on average. So they amortize the build out cost into the rent at some points for retail properties.
3: Okay, so if, if I'm a restaurant owner, the landlord is the one who is paying for the build out. So do I like tell them what I want and then they build it?
1: I'm not no. If you're looking for space, second-generation space is what I was referring to. That's typically something that already was a food use, and there's already the grease trap, the hood, and those things in place, and we're just trying to modify it to work for another food use because basically the costly items are already in place. And if you're looking at a completely blank slate of vanilla shell or a gray shell and you're any type of user, a restaurant, a store, a beauty salon, a spa, You'll cost out your build out and the landlord most of the time will contribute a portion of it, which is in the form of a tenant improvement allowance.
3: So it's allowed to be the same for industrial as well. So the person who owns the industrial building, the prospective tenant will say, hey, this is what I need. And the landlord will invest a portion of their money into it. And then the, the tenant will invest a portion. And then at the end, the landlord gets to keep the property and the tenant kind of doesn't get that money back or do they get the money back at the end? How does that work?
1: So, industrial buildings, there's typically less TI involved because it's just maybe one or two offices in a warehouse. But I have seen some situations where the landlord will contribute, but it'll be a minimal contribution of maybe five, 10 bucks a square foot as opposed to retail, where they might give you 20, 30, or $40 a square foot for your build out. And yeah, anything that's considered a fixture stays with the space. So, you don't get that back.
3: <laughs> so, let's talk about from the investor's perspective. Obviously, it's going to vary greatly depending on what industry they're doing. Like, where they are, they an office space, what kind of company are they for retail? What kind of retail company they are? But what types of returns are these owners seeing on these properties? Uh, actually, the ones that are owning the industrial, owning the retail, owning the office.
1: Are you talking about investors that are looking to get in the market now? We actually acquired our property years ago during the recession, so our returns are far better. <laughs> than what you can get now, to be honest. Um, right so, now, what you're looking state? at... Right
3: now, yeah, right Someone who's trying to get mm-hmm. into it and you're representing them as a broker.
1: Sure. Um, what, you
3: know, <laughs> and they come and say, hey, I have 100% return mm-hmm. on my investment. you are like, well, obviously, no. Here's what's pretty standard for this.
1: For commercial properties, it's usually a cap rate. We're looking at the NOI and the purchase price of that to calculate the cap rate. And essentially, between a six, seven is more of what we're seeing right now. Rarely you'll get an eight and sometimes you get even less than a six, but I would say six to seven is kind of average on the cap rates in today's market. But years ago, you got really high cap rates. Usually they're based on pro forma though. So it's basically a potential cap rate if the property were fully leased or 90% leased as opposed to whatever it is at that point.
3: All right. So do you want to walk us through the deal that you bought during the recession, how you found it, how you funded it, what mm-hmm. types of returns you're getting on that?
1: Sure. So we acquired a few properties during the recession. I'm from New York originally. And so we were investing over there. We sold off some of the properties and just did 1031 exchange to acquire the properties out here. That was really just our basis down payment essentially. And we were able to get funding during the recession. And for these really, I guess that you could call like almost distress. They're value add properties. They needed a lot of capital improvements. They had really, really high vacancies. They're maybe like, occupied. I know one of them was. And we got financing from foreign banks. So my family is Taiwanese and we have great relationships with Taiwanese banks. So when the American banks were not lending during the recession, we were able to get foreign financing. And that's why we were able to acquire these properties.
3: So you might telling us how much you bought it for, what it's worth now, and how much you're in all in
1: for which one we have a number of properties so I can give you one example that we acquired a few years ago actually it's a freestanding retail deal and that one we purchased right in the middle of the recession so we already sold that one acquired the building it was completely vacant actually this one so not even 40 percent, completely vacant we got it for only 355,000 so that's like a home almost it was a retail property with a few units and we contributed maybe 50000 in capital improvements, held it for a few years, collected rent, and actually occupied a small unit just for our own office. And then we ended up actually selling it maybe about five years later for $830,000. So more than double.
3: That's a solid deal. Changing gears mm-hmm. a little bit, this just piqued my interest. I know obviously you had relationships with the foreign banks, but what's some of the biggest differences between working with a foreign bank and working with a U.S. bank?
1: There's different requirements and just foreign banks, at least the ones we've dealt with, it's more relationship-based. They have to know you. They have to know your track record. They have to know not just your credit and what looks good on paper, but that you're an experienced investor, who you are as a person kind of deal. So we have relationships with the presidents of some of these banks, and that's helped us tremendously.
3: That's just through relationships through your family? You, you met yes. these banks? Yes. Okay, so, so someone who doesn't have those familiar relationships, is there any starting place in any, any way they can potentially work with a foreign bank? Let's say we hit another recession, U.S. banks aren't lending, at least the rates aren't I mm-hmm. think close to being competitive mm-hmm. enough to make deals make sense, and I want to work with a foreign bank. What are some, some of my first steps I need to take?
1: I would say just introduce yourself. This is such a people business, and networking and people skills are such a large part of our job. Just going out there, these foreign banks have locations in the U.S., so they'll have an L.A. satellite office, or we're based in Las Vegas, maybe they'll have one here. So just going there and meeting the right decision makers, trying to set up meetings, it's not much different than when you're trying to drum up business as an agent or a broker. Just be persistent in trying to get in front of them and trying to build rapport and create a relationship. Because so that's how we started, and we didn't have these relationships before we did.
3: All right, Catherine, what's your best real estate investing advice ever?
1: I would say probably opportunities don't go away, they go to someone else. So you have to make a decision and a lot of times you have to make a decision quick when you're looking for a good deal.
3: All are you ready for the best ever lightning round? Sure. All right, first a quick word from our sponsor.
2: Best ever listeners, go to BEC20.com. Look in the top left-hand corner. You can earn 15% as an affiliate. You can join the affiliate program and participate in the conference that way and basically earn a free ticket to the conference, BEC20.com. Feeling lost on your roadmap to wealth? Tune in to the newly launched REI Foundation Podcast, where hosts Jason and Peely give you all the steps and missteps towards achieving your investing dreams. Featuring interviews from top industry professionals, make sure you listen and subscribe to REI Foundation podcast at com.
3: All right, Catherine, what's the best ever book you've recently read?
1: Probably The Five Love Languages. So even though it's more pertaining to romantic relationships, I think you learn a lot about people and how they operate, their motivations, and that everyone has different drivers and preferences.
3: Yeah, I actually met my wife. I think was the, the one of the only books she had <laughs> at her house. <laughs> I know exactly what you're talking yeah. about. All right. If your business were going to collapse today, what would you do next?
1: I would say which one. I'm big on diversifying. Even within the real estate industry, you can diversify a lot. And I think that's important because it's unlikely that all of the lines of business would collapse at the same time. So I'm a broker and partner of a luxury residential firm. I myself am a broker that works with a lot of investor clients and business owners. And then I am also an investor myself with a sizable portfolio. So I don't know. It's just as long as you diversify, then it's unlikely that you'll have all things. I would just probably shift my focus and my time. If one portion of that collapsed, I'd just focus on the other two.
3: How would you start over today if you had little or no capital?
1: Just do more deals. (laughs) That's how we got started. Both my mother and I, we were brokers for a number of years. And as a broker, you really just, you hustle, you make as much as you want to make really and that's the beauty of our business that if you're willing to work hard, if you're willing to drum up that business, service it and provide the quality and the value that investors and your buyers are looking for your landlords, if you're able to deliver then you have the business and nowadays my business is actually all referral based. I don't have to do most of that business development work because my past clients and my circle already. They know who I am and what I do. So everyone just sends inbound referrals my way.
3: (laughs) So we already talked about one of your better deals. So let's talk about what is the worst deal you've ever done?
1: The worst? Knock on wood, luckily we haven't had anything too bad. I would just say just making a rash decision. And when I first started out, I started out with these small condos. And when I was first starting out, I thought it was such a headache. And so I just decided, let me just sell this. Sold it way too soon. I probably could have gotten fifty or $60,000 more on what I sold for a $120,000 condo. So bad timing, I think, and just making a rash decision. So nothing crazy.
3: What is the best mm-hmm. ever way you like to give back?
1: The best ever way would probably be mentoring i do volunteer and donate money to a lot of charities i love supporting the local community i actually serve on the board of one as well but i think really the most effective way to give back is really to mentor and empower people and that's a big part of why i decided to go into this brokerage side of the business and become uh, the partner of the (laughs) elite homes christie's is because this business i feel like just empowers you To really create your own path, create your own career, my commissions and the money, that's what allowed me to start becoming an investor. There's really not many other industries where you can double, triple, or quadruple your income in a number of years, where you could get that down payment that you need to acquire your first property. So I love to mentor new agents and teach them about the business, teach them about the opportunities in real estate, and that it's not just what you see on TV. There's so much more that goes into it. There's various facets. So you can usually find something that works for you.
3: And then lastly, what is the best ever place to reach you?
1: I'm on social. So Kathy Quo is we're on Facebook and Instagram, but they can also just email me at kathy at elitehomes.us or keep an eye out for the Forbes mentions that I, I serve on the Forbes Real Estate Council. So I'll contribute to their expert panel articles pretty often. Well, Catherine,
3: I appreciate you coming on the show today and providing us with your advice on specifically the commercial niches. So a few things we talked about. I don't know anything about what we talked about today, so everything that I learned today was brand new. <laughs> we kind of talked about the difference mm-hmm. between second generation and kind of a blank slate space and how second generation spaces, mm-hmm. which specifically for like restaurants that are already set up as a restaurant space, will mm-hmm. usually go for about a dollar per square foot more than something that's not already used for for food. Mm-hmm. Whereas for the blank slates. It's uh, whatever needs to be installed at the location is usually split between the landlord and the tenant. We talked about the mm-hmm. going returns right now for industrial retail and office spaces, which is based off the cap rate, so about six, seven. You're really going to get eight, and that's based off of the actual pro forma, so it's based off of the potential, not how the, the thing's actually operating. Then we actually talked about one of your deals that you did, completely vacant, bought it for three fifty-five, invested fifty k, and. After five years, sold it for $830,000. So as you mentioned, more than doubled the investment. And you also mentioned how when you acquired most of your deals, it was during the recession and you focused on getting financing from foreign banks as opposed to U.S. banks. And we talked a little bit about how someone who's interested in working with foreign banks, how they get started. It's really no different than working with any other bank. Just find their their U.S. branch determine who the decision makers are and introduce yourself and network. And you also mentioned that the foreign banks do focus a little bit more on you as a person, your experience, in, in kind of your track record, who you are as a person. And then lastly, your best advice, which is fantastic, which is opportunities don't go away, they go to someone else. So if there is an opportunity, it's not just going to dissipate, either you take it or someone else is going to take it, and you don't want to be sitting there after multiple years realizing that you've let so many opportunities slip away that ended up being very lucrative for someone else. So appreciate the conversation. Appreciate again you taking the time. Best of your listeners. Thank you for listening. Have a best every day, and we'll talk to you soon.
1: Sure, talk to you soon. Thank you.
2: Feeling lost on your roadmap to wealth? Tune in to the newly launched REI Foundation podcast, where hosts Jason and Peely give you all the steps and missteps towards achieving your investing dreams. Featuring interviews from top industry professionals, make sure you listen and subscribe to REI Foundation podcast at the